I'll echo Giovanna's good morning to you, and I'm so glad that you're here uh, at, the, at the story, even though we're not at the story. <laughs> if this is your first time worshiping with us here, uh, we, we aren't always gathering in a centuries-old French chapel. This is, I think, a once-in-a-lifetime for a preacher to stand here on Easter and share the Easter message in a place like this. It's Pretty cool, right, guys? Uh, it's pretty awesome. And so I'm glad y'all are here by way of video. Um, I just wanted you to know, if you want more information about the story and what we're all about and how to get connected at the story, please visit our website, thestory.church. There's lots of information there for you if, if this is your first time gathering with us in any capacity, even if it's just online. Um, also, those of you that um, call the story home and support our mission with your financial resources, I'm so grateful for your continued support through this weird season of COVID-19 and the quarantine. Um, y'all have been so faithful, and uh, we're doing what we can to cut back costs and all of that, but your support means more than ever. And if you would be so kind um, out of your generous hearts to visit thestory.church slash donate. Um, that's the only way that we're passing the plate, so to speak, throughout this crisis. And so thank you in advance for that. I can't really believe I'm here right now um, in this context uh, at a time like this on Easter Sunday of all days in a room with uh, nine other people uh, celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. It is a, a strange time, but this is an honor. I'm deeply honored to be here uh, in this centuries-old chapel where many saints have come before and through times of, uh, you know, uh, ease and great blessing and times of difficulty and great trials, they continue to worship God and God continue to be faithful. And so I'm grateful to be here. Also, I'm grateful to the owners of this place that made it available to us out of the goodness of their hearts for us to gather here on Easter Sunday. So um, listen, today I'm going to talk a little bit about heaven. And uh, I don't think there's any better time to talk about heaven than on Easter Sunday, because I think that is really what this is all about. I've said since the very beginning of the story, every year I've said the same thing. If the resurrection of Jesus is true, if Easter really happened, um, it changes everything. And it really is the most important event in the history of the world. If the tomb was really empty, then it is all that really matters. And, uh, you know, so many of the things that we worry ourselves with pale in comparison to the magnitude of the empty tomb. Now, if it's just a myth or if it's just, you know, make-believe uh, or if it's just a metaphor, then, hey, you get your uh, Sunday morning back. Uh, you can maybe apply to your church to have all your tithes and offerings refunded. Not our church, but whatever other church you've been to. <laughs> you can apply to get all of those, uh, you know, refunded to you. Um, uh, but if it's real, it's capital R real. And it is the most important thing uh, that's ever happened. And it's, it's really interesting when you look at that reality in Scripture. If, obviously, the, the resurrection if, is the most important event in history, then it's obviously the most important event in the Bible. And when you look at the Easter stories in the Bible, what you get is kind of a, a mixed message. And if you're a skeptic, this can really be a challenge for you. Because when you look at the four accounts of the resurrection, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the stories they tell about the risen Jesus, uh, the details don't always line up 
Now I'll give you an example. We just heard Pastor Gio read from the Gospel of Mark, and um, his is just one of four, and, and he differs from the others in some of the details. You heard Mark say there were three women who witnessed the um, resurrection, the empty tomb, right? Well, Matthew says there were two women. And Luke mentions um, four or more women that were there on the first Easter morning. And then John says there was only one. Mary Magdalene is the only one that he names, right? So uh, they differ on some of these other details as well. John doesn't mention any angels that were there at the tomb, which if there were angels at the tomb, I think that's worth mentioning. Like, I feel like that's, that's a glaring omission. If there was an angel at the tomb, it's worth putting in there. John doesn't. Now, Luke, Mark, and Matthew all say that there was at least one. Luke says there were two angels at the tomb. Matthew also says that there were guards at the tomb and that there was an earthquake that shook the ground that morning. Now, Mark, Luke, and John don't mention any guards or an earthquake. So... When you look at some of these minor discrepancies in the texts, what does it mean? What are we supposed to do with this? Now, I talk to cynics and skeptics all the time who get hung up on these, on these facts in the text, and, and they get so frustrated that they'll just throw up their hands and walk away. They think that it takes away from the credibility of the story itself. They think that if you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John can't get their story straight, then why should we believe what they had to say? Is it really too much to ask for them to have told exactly the same story in exactly the same way? I got into this, uh, this argument this week with uh, someone who emailed me um, several times, actually, uh, all at once. They emailed a bunch of different questions and several different emails and He's a listener of the Maybe God podcast, and he's heard some of our sermons recently, including one of John Burke's sermons, uh, who was a guest preacher who spoke about near-death experiences recently. And uh, he was upset about some of the things he thought were just you know, lies or false teachings or some things I said that were misleading in his opinion. And, and he wanted me to account for specifically all of the discrepancies in the gospel texts. Now, I'm not really sure who this guy was. And I'm not really sure, I'm not positive it wasn't one of my buddies who was just messing with me because the email address looked a little suspicious and the name attached to that address was Mr. Ben Dover. Mr. <laughs> ben Dover, whoever you are, <laughs> I'm grateful that you reached out because I think, I think these questions matter. And I love having conversations like this one because I believe when you take a closer look and when you apply some critical thinking to this issue of the discrepancies in the gospel texts about the resurrection, they actually lend more credibility to the story instead of detracting away from it. Let me just pose it this way. Imagine that we had four eyewitness accounts of the most important event in history, this resurrection event. Imagine that all four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, lined up word for word, perfectly verbatim, and they told the story in exactly the same way, lockstep with one another. Would that not raise more suspicions and not less? Wouldn't that make you more suspicious of what they're telling you? Doesn't that just reek of collusion? Um, and doesn't it just seem like they're trying to trick you? Of course, that's the case. I mean, we should expect different eyewitnesses to remember different details about the same event. 
And um, the longer you study the stories of the resurrection, the more these discrepancies sort of fade away into the background because, and this is the most important point, all four gospel writers tell of the same core event that happened that day. There is no disagreement among them. They are all quite certain that what mattered most that day was that the tomb of Jesus Christ was empty. And if the tomb of Jesus Christ is empty, everything else fades into the background. If the tomb of Jesus Christ is empty, it means that God came to earth because he loves you. It means God was willing to die on a cross for you. If the tomb of Jesus Christ is empty, then there is something to look forward to after this life. That's why we're talking about the afterlife for seven weeks at the story with this series on heaven, hell, and everything in between, whatever there is to come, because we believe the tomb was empty. And if it's empty, then we can trust the promises Jesus makes. His promises, if he rose from the grave, will come to pass, and you can base your life on them. You can build a life around them if his tomb is empty including his promises about heaven. And I know you hear a lot about heaven in songs and think maybe about heaven, about your loved ones. And, and I think it's good for us to think about these things because Jesus spoke of these things. He made promises about what's waiting for us on the other side of this life in heaven, like the promise that he made to the thief on the cross next to his when he said, even in his agony on the cross, he said, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. That's a promise. If the tomb is empty, it's a promise you can trust. Or the times that he referred to heaven as a place of pure joy, where the angels rejoice. If the tomb is empty, we have a place of pure joy waiting for us. Or the promise that he made to his disciples before he died when he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And then I'll come back so that I can take you to where I am. Listen, God's reason for the resurrection was to fling wide the gates of heaven so that every sinner, even the worst one, even me, we might find our way home to God for eternity. That's his end game. That's what he wants, is eternity with you. And he wants all the details and discrepancies and distractions of our lives to fade into the background so that we can see what matters most, the empty tomb of Jesus and what it means for us today. It really brings into focus, I think, some of the perspective that we've gained through this COVID-19 crisis. Just take a minute. I know I'm talking nonstop, but just take a minute to take stock of how your life, your perspective has changed. It's only been, what, four or five weeks, but in some ways I feel like everything has changed. Think about the stuff we used to worry about. Look, over the last four or five weeks, I feel like my idols have just been falling to the ground. 
one after the other, because I used to bend the knee to all kinds of things that really were just tertiary things, secondary things, superfluous things that don't really matter most. But boy, did I worship them. Things like my view of success. I used to think, I used to think, this was just like a month ago, but I used to feel like success meant a certain kind of um, prominence If you're living a successful life, you're going places, you're seeing people, you're shaking hands and you're being seen and, you know, you get these kinds of uh, attention. And that's what I thought. I thought success meant a calendar full of important events with important people. And I confess to you, as a pastor on Easter morning, I confess to you, part of me was bending the knee to that idol every day or the idol of, of what I thought to be good parenting. You know, I thought that what it meant to raise um, healthy, happy, fulfilled, successful kids is to fill their schedules up too. <laughs> to, the, the, the more you have them involved in, the better you're doing as a parent. So get them to that music class, get them to that you know, dance lesson, get them to that baseball field, get them to the lacrosse pitch or whatever they call it. Like get them to all these things. And the more that you do, the better that you are. Whatever you do, don't let your kids get bored. If they're bored, you're failing. (laughs) Another idol that I bent the knee to had to do with church. I thought a month ago that what it meant to have a healthy church was every Sunday you had a, a building full of people. And to me, fulfillment looked like standing in front of hundreds of people at a time and showing them what I know and, you know, telling funny stories and making them cry and all this stuff. And God is, God is emptying me out right now. God is stripping off our masks. He is tearing away at the layers of this superfluous stuff we've given our lives to. Now, I'm not saying that he sent COVID-19 to punish us or anything. I'm just saying that for me, anything less than a pandemic probably would not have been enough to shake me up and slow me down long enough to listen to him, to see this new way. Look, um, talk about going places and seeing people. I haven't gone anywhere in a month This is the first place I've been. It's so good to be out of the house today. I'm sorry you're not, but this is great, right? This is awesome, but this is it. And so I've had to learn some new things, wonderful things, but hard things. You know, my kids have been bored for three weeks straight now. I ran out of stuff to do in week one, and they've just been bored. And you know what I've realized is that sometimes boredom is the greatest gift you can give your kids because boredom gives way to silence and silence is where God speaks. That's where prayer happens. That's where creativity happens. And so I was robbing my kids of that because of the idol I was bending my knees to. And that idol of church, it's come crashing down as well. You know, I got addicted to rooms full of hundreds of people. And and today, Easter Sunday, I was expecting 2,000 people or more. I've got nine. You guys are great, but you're just nine. And I think God is still trying to teach me something, something more. He's trying to teach me how to preach and live for an audience of one. Not even nine is an audience small enough. These are some of the lessons that I think coronavirus, COVID-19, quarantine, like it's teaching us about what really 
matters most. Look, if the tomb is really empty today, it doesn't matter where you work. Or in this economy, where you used to work, it doesn't matter what you make. If the tomb of Jesus is empty, it doesn't matter how you look, how other people think of you or speak of you. It doesn't matter what your past was. Your politics don't matter. Who's president doesn't matter. None of these things we spend our lives chasing or fighting or whatever. It doesn't matter if the tomb is empty. It's all that matters. All the distractions and discrepancies and everything else. It's just icing on the cake. And the cake is the risen Jesus. That, he, is the only thing that really matters. I think we're starting to learn these lessons. The reason he came to to earth to meet us where we are is so that he could take us to where he is. Heaven is the reason that he rose to take you there one day with him because he loves you so much. And if we're talking about heaven all the time and it's all over the Bible and thinking about heaven, what will it be like What will heaven be like when we get there one day? What do we have to look forward to exactly? Again, if if the tomb's empty, we can trust Jesus, right? And so what does Jesus say about heaven? He said it's paradise. He said it's joy, pure joy. He, you know, said he has many rooms for us and he's going to prepare one. All right. There's other stories as well we can look to to figure out what heaven is like. There are people, um, we've talked about them in recent weeks, who've had these NDEs, right? These near death experiences. Some of them are Christian, some of them aren't. Some of them are, you know, Western American folks, and many, many more are not. These seem to be a universal human experience. And two thirds of these people who have these near death experiences and come back to tell the stories speak of a heavenly experience. And what's interesting about the things they say about heaven is that um, much like the gospel uh, accounts of Easter, the people who've had these experiences differ in some of the details of what they experienced in, in, in their taste of heaven. Some of them said they went through a tunnel to get there. Others said it was more like walking a path to get there. Some folks said that when they got there, they were greeted by a welcoming committee of uh, loved ones that they recognized. Others said, I didn't get a welcoming committee. Some people said there were angels. Others said there weren't. Some people said Jesus was there wearing a white robe and he had his beard and all of it. Other people said, I didn't see any embodied Jesus. And so what are we to make of these discrepancies? Do they discredit the, the power of the heaven you know, testimonies that they bring back with them. I don't think they do because there is within almost every one of these heavenly stories a common thread. There is a, a strand that runs throughout each one. And that is that the presence of God is light and love. The presence of God is light and love. This is a universal experience of heaven. And the video that you're about to see uh, shows several different examples of people who came back from death with stories to tell about heaven and how they experienced the light and the love 
of God. This video is part of our curriculum for our small groups during this season. Um, we do hope that you'll get plugged into one of those small groups, the story.church groups. They're starting now. Check out this video for a taste of what's in store for these groups. This light was shining over my shoulders. I began to see a small, bright, brilliant glow that got bigger and bigger and bigger. And it's the brightest thing you can imagine, but I could look at it. And I never, ever wanted to leave. 64.6% of near-death experiencers describe an unearthly, beautiful, mystical light. They feel overwhelming love. It's sort of like a million times a million of any love they ever felt on Earth. They did see the magnificence of just the light shining forth in everything, bringing life to everything. And the light was not just something you would see. This was really a light born out of love. This God of light, this God is personal. He knows them like no one has ever known them. He loves me so much. By the time I'm thinking of him loving me, it's old news because he even loves me more. Then I felt this tremendous amount of love, and I knew I was in the presence of God. Well, welcome back to our What's Afterlife discussion. You know, we've talked about the scientific evidence for the afterlife, relationships in heaven, and the beauty of heaven. The truth is different people hope for different things in heaven. Some hope for sailing, like me. Some hope for beautiful houses. Some hope for all-you-can-eat chocolate chip cookies and pizza bars. Now, the truth is some of us are just searching for the wrong things. But honestly, after years of research and listening to people having near-death experiences, there's no doubt what the highlight of heaven will be, God. You know, what's astonishing is how consistently people who encounter God all across the globe describe this same being. God is light and love. They sometimes describe a man of brilliant light, brighter than the sun, but easy to look at, in fact, mesmerizing. And not an impersonal force, a very personal, sometimes even humorous being who knows them like no one has ever known them. All around the globe, they know this God intuitively. God is love beyond the wildest imagination, an all-knowing love that sees right through you, knows everything, good and bad, and yet loves you more than a mother, father, grandparent, spouse, lover ever could, times a thousand. And in his presence, indie ears never wanna leave. You know, of all the beauty and wonder and colors and mountains and valleys and loving reunions with family and friends, nothing compares, they say, to the presence of God. You know, I'm convinced when you and I see God for the first time, we will finally realize you are what I've been longing for all this time. As you can see, so many of the people that had these near-death experiences and uh, got a taste of heaven come back talking about the pure, blinding light of God's presence and the feeling of being ultimately loved by God um, in his presence in heaven. I think that is what we have to look forward to. And it's all incredibly interesting when you know your Bible because light and love is how the Bible has been describing the presence of God for 3,500 years. You know, it, and it goes all the way back to Moses who described God's presence as a powerful light that like the likes of which he had never seen before. 
Um, Paul in the New Testament described God as a blinding light as well, or his presence as a blinding light. And then you've got Jesus telling his disciples that he is the light of the world. Daniel in the Old Testament says that God's face is like lightning. And so you've got all of these um, pieces of uh, the puzzle with the Bible passages connecting with these near-death experiences that I think are just too compelling to ignore. Now, I know that there are skeptics who will say, well, if you know the Bible and, and you're a Christian and you have this traumatic event of dying or believing that you've died, then maybe those memories will fire in your brain and, and you'll have these built-in moments with God that you already expected in the first place. That might be the case if it weren't for the non-Christians, people that don't know the Bible at all, who come back from their moment with God, describing his presence in the same way, regardless of religion. Almost the universal experience of God's presence is one of light and love. And I think that is too compelling to ignore this Easter Sunday. So if we're looking forward to heaven, what should we be looking forward to? Paradise, joy, light, and love. The perfect love of God dwelling in it for all of eternity. Now, if the tomb is really empty, then that really is all that matters. You know, um, this life that we get, you know, uh, so upset or worried about sometimes, and I know especially right now there's a lot on our minds, it's really just a dress rehearsal. It matters, but it doesn't matter nearly as much as we trick ourselves into thinking. So, you know, Jesus says that we should love each other during this life. We should love one another. We should love ourselves. We should love our friends. And we should love our enemies. Why? Because this is a time of preparation for the love that will envelop us for all eternity. And I think regardless of your religious persuasion, I really believe, even if you're not convinced about the religious stuff preachers say, I'm telling you, we all agree, almost universally, do we agree that love is where it's at. And we're not here to say, I'm not here to say that to know love, you have to be a Christian. I'm just saying that the reason it is a universal human experience, that love is where it's at, is because the God who made us all in his image is a God of love, a God of light, a God who wants to know you and be known by you and to be with you for all eternity. I think our eyes have been opened in some really special ways over the last five or six weeks as we've been wrapped up in fear with this COVID business and, and, and we've seen love break through and we've been so deeply touched by the stories of love that we've seen online or on the news or in social media. Um, it's just blown us away, the stories of nurses and doctors that have put themselves in harm's way, first responders that have put their lives on the line and their health on the line for the greater good, for people they don't even know. That, we know, is what love looks like. And love like that is all that really matters. We've seen other examples of stories of love. I saw a few this week that just simultaneously broke my heart and made my heart grow a few sizes. Like the story of this young man 
who used to visit his father in this assisted living facility until COVID-19 shut it down and he couldn't get inside his father's room anymore. And so he pulled up a lawn chair outside his father's window and his father sat inside his assisted living room and, and the son sat outside and he called him on the cell phone and they shot the breeze for a while, a father and a son mid-quarantine. I know the son did this so that his father would not go through this scary crisis all alone. Love like that points to God and the God of love that we know he is all that really matters we've seen stories of a young woman uh, like like this one a young woman who uh, who went to visit her grandfather with some news. She didn't want him to miss out on the announcement of her engagement. And so she made sure the ring was on her finger and she stood outside his nursing home and she showed him her ring and she cried and he cried. That kind of love reminds us what it's all about. Or the husband of 60 years who used to visit his wife every day in her hospital because she suffers now for 17 years with Alzheimer's disease. And him singing to her is the only thing that tethers her to the reality that she knew. So every day he goes and he stands at the door and he serenades her, his voice trembling with age. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Has this in some ways deepened your love for her even more? Well, it certainly hasn't reduced it. I'm not sure it could get much deeper because I've posted before and I say, it's till death do us part and then we're together in eternity. I'm not crying. Um, you're crying. Uh, maybe, maybe we're all crying right now and maybe we should with tears of joy because God is love and he is light. And he wants you to be with him in heaven forever. That is what Easter really means. And that is all that really matters. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you from different places right now on this Easter Sunday, different physical places, but also different spiritual ones. And some of us are all in with you already, and others of us are still curious. We're on the fence. And I want to pray with those who feel your call on their heart right now, and they hear your voice in some small way, and they know that their life should be a reflection of your love, and they know that they really are your daughter, your son. I pray right now with them. Father, receive me. As your child, I receive you as my father. I want my life to be about something more than just the empty, superfluous stuff I've been chasing. I want my life to be about your love shown to me and for me in the form of a cross and an empty tomb. Thank you, Father. Together we all pray a prayer of gratitude 
for all that you are and for all the love you've shown us all our lives. And we pray for this hurting world right now as we're all in this crisis together. And we know you to be a God of love who is in this crisis with us, working to bring about something good and beautiful, even through a time such as this. We love you, especially on Easter morning. Father, I love you. We pray in the name of the risen Jesus. Amen.